If you're able, would you remain standing for the reading of God's Word? I'm going to read Psalm 119, verses 1 through 8. As I was thinking about this series, I was thinking about the possibility of actually reading the entire psalm together um, for the first for the first sermon, uh, just to have the whole experience. I decided not to do that. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 through through eight this morning. This is the, the perfect, inspired, and inerrant word of our Lord. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. You have commended us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. I'll praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I'll keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we pray that you'd open our eyes to see wonderful things concerning your law from this passage, from this psalm. And we pray that as we consider the entire psalm through the year, uh, weeks and months to come, that you would revive us to love you and to love your word for asking Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I have been planning or considering the series on Psalm 119 for a, a while now, uh, probably a year or two. But I've been very scared of it. Um, I, I didn't know if it would be a monotonous series because of the theme of the psalm or that we, I would actually have the ability to get my mind around it to be able to uh, preach it to you. But, um, and, and another thing that scared me is the amount of stuff written on Psalm 119 and to be able to get a good sample of what people have thought about it's a lot, a lot of time. We're going to take a look at a couple of things here in a minute. And having considered that, considering my fears, perhaps even my laziness, I thought, you know, a series on sermons on this psalm, uh, more precisely 23 sermons on this psalm, will help us grow in our passion and our love for God's Word. My hope is that this series of sermons, this soul-stirring life-changing, heart-strengthening, spiritually revitalizing and refreshing study that God uses to revive us as a church and as individuals. And I hope and pray that God will do that for my own heart and for all of our hearts as we go through Psalm 119 together. Many Bibles have Psalm 119 in the, in the middle, uh, depending on the pagination. You open your Bible right in the middle, and that's Psalm 119. All of our Bibles are going to have it very, fairly close to the middle, to the center of the Bible. Technically, in the English Bible, Psalm 117 is the middle chapter of the Bible. There's 594 chapters before chapter 117, and there's 594 chapters after chapter um, uh, 117 of the Psalms. But Psalm 119 is pretty close to the center, and it is fitting that right here, near the very heart 
of God's word, we find this psalm, Psalm 119, the psalm of a man's passionate heart for God's word. Near the actual center of the scriptures, we find a psalm that actually speaks of the centrality of the scriptures in everyday life. And this psalm speaks of what is at the core of being a Christian, at least of being a Protestant Christian. Uh, James Boyce, years ago, wrote an introduction to a, more of a preface to John Calvin's sermons on Psalm 119. John Calvin, John Calvin preached 22 sermons on this uh, book, this chapter, and Boyce added a preface to it. And in the preface, Boyce says, When the Protestant Reformation took place in the 16th century, and the truths of the Bible, which had long been obscured by the traditions of the medieval church, again became known, there was an immediate elevation of the scriptures in the Protestant services. John Calvin, in particular, carried this out with thoroughness, ordering that the altars, long the center of the Latin Mass, be removed from the churches, and that a pulpit with a Bible open be placed in the center of the building. This was not to be on one side of the room, but at the center, where every line of the architecture would carry the gaze of the people to that book. And I hope we can consider that as we consider a new building, that the architecture would tell a story about what we believe concerning uh, the scriptures and centrality of it in the worship of the Lord. Uh, this psalm calls for scripture alone to have the central place and preeminent place in all of our hearts and all that we do in all our lives. The psalm epitomizes the Reformation model of sola scriptura. Scriptures alone are sufficient for all matters of faith and life. The scriptures alone, not a style of service, drew people into the churches in the Reformation. It was always the word being proclaimed in a worship service that was shaped by the word of God that brought revival to the church. It wasn't performance that drew people in. It was the preaching of the whole counsel of God, the way God wrote it, verse by verse, book by book, that truly has truly changed lives through the history of God's church. It was not about entertainment. It's never been about entertainment in the true church of Christ. It's been about the proclamation and exposition of the scriptures. Nothing is more relevant for us. Nothing is more relevant to every age than the scriptures. The scriptures are more up to date than tomorrow's news. We don't need to make the Bible relevant. It, it is relevant. We may be out of touch with it, but it's always relevant. And any attempt to improve or to upgrade God's message will quickly make, make us irrelevant. The Bible is always relevant. The grass of culture withers. The flower of fads of our fads soon will fade. But the word of our God abides forever. And this psalm speaks of the word of God and humanity's needs. Man's nature, you know, we read the Bible and we think that's talking about some other people. But man's nature, humanity's nature has not changed since Bible times. And we need, our needs have not changed since the Bible times. The Lord Jesus Christ, when resisting Satan's temptation in Matthew chapter 4, 
He resists it by saying, man shall do what? Shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. Man's true need is always the God who is revealed in this book. Look at what the psalmist says in verse 25. We're going to be flipping through the psalm a lot during this sermon, so be ready there. He says, my soul clings to dust. Revive me according to your word. That's his need. He wants God to revive him. He needs God. Man's problem is always the same. Our problem is always the same. Our problem is sin. And the solution is always the same. To know and to love God and his word through repentance. And this is what we desperately need, which is one of the reasons I'm looking forward to this series for my own soul. Seeking revival for my own soul. So you can say, man, my pastor is so selfish. He's doing it for himself. But I, but I, I think that was good for my soul. is good for your soul as well. Because our needs are the same. This is what we all need. Having a high view of God and His Word must remain at the center of everything in our church. Everything in our families. Everything in our lives. I pray... I pray that our great God will be honored as we seek to honor his great word in this study of this great psalm for his great glory. My plan is to preach 23 sermons, one stanza in the morning, one stanza in the afternoon. So eight verses in the morning, eight verses in the afternoon till we are through this psalm. And as I said in Sunday school, you might say, well, but then... But, but, but I'll miss the afternoons. So you can't do that because I'll miss the ones preaching afternoon and, and that's so easily resolved. <laughs> do you know how you can solve that? By being here for the, the whole worship of the Lord. And we'll do that morning and afternoon until we get to verse 176, which should take us through December 25th, depending on a couple dates that uh, we're going to settle at the session meeting today. And what I want to get across today is that the subject of this psalm is the Word of God and the God of the Word. I think we are familiar with Psalm 119 enough to know that it's about the Word of God. But it's not only about the Word of God, it's also about the God of the Word. This is one of the few times where, when all commentaries agree on the theme of a chapter. You know, uh, uh, new commentaries are always written in order to contradict former commentaries, and they're always fighting about what is about what. This is one of those chapters that everybody agrees on what is about. It's about the Word of God and the God of the Word. Now, there are other sub-themes that flow from that, but the Scripture is indisputably the main subject, being mentioned nearly 180 times in 175 verses. There's only one verse in the whole psalm that doesn't refer to the Bible directly by a, a synonym to the Word of God. Even if you just looked at the first eight verses that we read, you're going to see that each one of those verses has a reference to the Bible. The author used, uses eight terms uh, to refer to the Bible. Uh, he used the term law. You can see that in the very first verse. That's the, the Hebrew word Torah, which means more than just talking about the Ten Commandments, but t- talking about all the teaching and instruction of the Lord, and thus stand for the whole of the Bible. He also refers to the Bible as the testimonies of the Lord. 
things that God is saying about himself and about his word, and because coming from God, they are believable. He also, he also uses the word precepts. You see that in verse 4, where uh, the idea is the declarations of what God expects us to do. And then he used the word statutes in verse 5. And this usually uh, originally is based on the word for carving or hewing or setting on stone. And uh, it tells us about the, the, the forever nature of the word of God. It's settled on stone. It's not something that's going to pass away. It's not something that can be changed. He used the word commandments. You can see that in verse 6. This, is a word, this emphasizes the, the straight authority of what he said and the right to give others. He used the word judgments. See that in verse 7, sometimes related ordinances, which is a synonym to statutes. And then he uses two Hebrew words for the word word. Does that sentence make sense to you? So he uses two different Hebrew words for the English word word. The first one you find in verse 9, the word devar. This is the most general term for God's communication of his will to us. And the other one is found in verse 11. Both of them are just translated word. It refers to the law of God in general or his promises in particular. And the interesting thing is that they're all used about the same amount of time, between 20 and 25 times each one of these words. And every verse, as I said before, except for verse 122, includes one of these words. Another thing about this psalm is that it's structured as an acrostic poem. This psalm is a magnificent masterpiece of Hebrew poetry, the product of, human, of the human genius and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, do you know what an acrostic poem? It sounds like something that you sow, but that's not it. Uh, that's cross-stitch, not acrostic. An acrostic poem is a poem where each line starts with one letter of the alphabet. There are eight psalms that do that in, in our Psalter. Psalm 9, Psalm 10, 25, 34, 37, 111, 112, and 145. They're all acrostic poems. But this one, Psalm 119, is unique in that each eight verses start with the consecutive letters of the Hebrew alphabets. If you just uh, gaze your eyes through the passage, you're going to see that separate, separated in eight verse increments. The first one, at least in my Bible, we have a little Hebrew character and then the word Aleph. That's the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which means in Hebrew, all those eight verses start with that letter. And then verses 9 through 16, we have the little symbol there. It looks like a backwards uh, hangman. Uh, that's the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Beth. And every line starts with that letter, and so on and so forth. And the author did a great job of varying. If you look, except for the section of, of the letter Vav, it's the, each line starts with a different Hebrew word. So it's not like he used the same Hebrew word all the way through. But in the letter of Av, I think he got tired, and every verse starts end, 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 end in Hebrew, because it is one letter um, there. So there are 22 stanzas, one, of each, one for each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And, and many believe this, would be, this was a mnemonic device. You know what a mnemonic device is? Something that helps you remember something. I remember years and years ago, Emily was teaching Sunday school uh, through First Peter. And she, did, she taught the kids to remember, I think there are five places that uh, 
First Peter's address to remember Grace. What was it? What was the 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 PG Cab? That that way you can remember where First Peter was sent to. The PG Cab. Those five places: Cappadocia, Bithynia, Pontus, Galatia, and one more, Asia. So, uh, and so some say that Psalm 119 is, is, is structured that way in order to help people remember what comes next. And there's truth to that, but I think there's more. Not just to help memorize it, but also to present the subject in exhaustive fullness, using the whole alphabet, the whole gamut of language. This is the A through Z of the subject. A complete tribute to complete to a complete word, just as Jesus, the incarnate word, is called what? What remember how he calls himself in Revelation, the book of Revelation? He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, the last letter of the Greek alphabet, the completeness of all things. And I think the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, had that in mind that when he wrote a poem based on every letter of the Hebrew alphabet, says, I'm giving you the A through Z. Of, of the Word of God and the God of the Word. It speaks of the perfection, the completeness, the fullness, the finality, the sufficiency of the Word of God. And this poem not only is, it has a magnificent and beautiful structure for the beautiful Word of God, but there's also a majesty in the sheer length that marches on and on and on for the honor of the scriptures. 176 verses. Now, if you read through the Bible in a year, uh, there are a few places that you got to, oh man, that's on schedule for tomorrow. No, that's, one of them is Leviticus, right? Oh, I just have to survive this. First uh, Chronicles 1 through 9, which you can go home later tonight and take a look at what that is, also is another place that, oh, I just have to, in my mind, when I get to First Chronicles one through nine, I keep on saying in my mind, every scripture is inspired. By, every scripture is inspired by God and profitable. Every scripture is inspired by God. There has to be some profit in in here. And then one of those is Psalm one hundred nineteen, just because it's so long. But as you get into it, it's such a rich, and the sheer size of it, it just causes us to grow in amazement of the Word of God. Psalm one hundred nineteen has been called the Mount Everest of the psalms, towering over the rest in its massive size, its majesty, its matchless tributes to the matchless word of our infinite and awesome God who reflects his glory and greatness in his word and his son. Uh, John Piper writing on this idea of majesty, writing of this idea of looking what stuff that's big and magnificent helps us understand ourselves a little better. He says this, we are, we are all starved for the glory of God, not self. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. Right? Why do we go, he asks, because there is greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than there is in beholding self. Indeed, what could be more ludicrous in a vast and glorious universe like this than a human being on the speck called Earth standing in front of a mirror trying to find significance in his own self-image? 
It is a great sadness that this is the gospel of the modern world, but it is not the Christian gospel, Piper says. Into the darkness of petty self-preoccupation has shown the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The Christian gospel is about the glory of Christ, not about me. And when it is, in some measure, about me, it is not about my being made much of my uh, be made much of, of by God, but about God mercifully enabling me to enjoy making much of Him forever. And the size of Psalm 119 reminds us of that. As we, we just look at this Mount Everest of the Psalms, or this Grand Canyon of the Psalms, I pray that we can lose ourselves in it and find God instead of ourselves. What is so great about wonders like the uh, Grand Canyon or the Alps or Mount Everest is that the focus is on majesty, not on me, not on you. In life, less refreshment and joy are found to the degree that the focus is not on men, not on us. We lose ourselves in the presence of massive deeps and majestic heights, and it's a wonderful thing when we do that. The greatest refreshment of mind and health for our soul and the greatest happiness for our hearts come from great splendor, not from great self. It comes from basking in true beauty, rejoicing in true glory, delighting in the manifold splendor of God and His revelation. And nowhere, nowhere is the splendor of God's Word more on display Nowhere is the majesty of Holy Scripture clearer. Nowhere is the soul-satisfying, passion-producing Bible more celebrated than in Psalm 119. This is a much-beloved psalm through history, if you can count the amount of stuff written on it as a sign of love for it. In his Treasury of David, Charles Haddon Spurgeon has 349 pages on this psalm alone. There's almost a whole book on this psalm alone. Spurgeon, who certainly was not intimidated by mere manning his preaching, was intimidated by this psalm. It was the last one he wrote. He spent 20 years writing on the psalms, and this was the last one. He couldn't get to his mind around it till the last, the very end. He wrote, I have been bewildered in the expense of the 119th psalm. Its dimensions and its depth alike overcame me. It spread itself out before me like a vast rolling prairie to which I could see no bound, and this alone created a feeling of dismay. It threatened a monotonous task, although the fear has not been realized. This marvelous poem, Spurgeon says, seemed to me a great sea of holy teaching, moving in its many verses, wave upon wave, altogether without an island, I confess I hesitated to launch upon it. Other psalms have been mere lakes, but this is the main ocean. It is a continent of sacred thought, every inch of which is fertile as the garden of the Lord. It is an amazing level of abundance, a mighty stretch of harvest fields. And he wasn't the only one to say things like this. Uh, Charles Bridges, a 19th century uh, Church of England evangelical preacher, wrote a book of sermons on it, 481 pages. 22 sermons, 481 pages. Most impressive of all the writings on Psalm 119 is Thomas Menton's three volumes 
on Psalm 119. Yes, exactly, Julius. That is a lot of writing. Thomas Menton was one of the most prolific of the uh, um, of the Puritans. Super. Uh, his writings are very beneficial. They don't. They're not helpful when you're preparing a sermon because you have to read thousands of pages to figure out what one verse means. But as far as just devotional value, it has a lot of value. So he wrote three volumes on Psalm 119, each one at least 600 pages to a total of 1,677 pages on Psalm 119, 190 sermons on Psalm 119. So it's, one, it's more than one sermon per verse that Thomas Menton preached. I have the books, not plain or reading it, but I'll tell you right away uh, for the purpose of this, this sermon. Uh, more like what I'm trying to do, Calvin himself preached 22 sermons on Psalm 119. Augustine, who lived some 16 centuries ago, one of the most prominent church fathers, pre-Reformation church fathers, gave himself to a lifelong study of the Psalms. and he, Even he hesitated to try and plumb the depths of the 119th chapter. He too waited to the end of his life to write on this psalm, uh, a commentator on the life of Augustine says this, it says, among his voluminous works of comment on the book of Psalms, he, that is Augustine, delayed to comment on this one till he had finished the whole Psalter, and then yielded only to the long and vehement urgency of his friends, because, Augustine says, as often as I, as I essayed to think thereon, it always exceeded the powers of my intent thought and the utmost grasp of my faculties. So one of the most intelligent men to ever live, Augustine, said, this, is, this one pushed me to the limit. And I hope we are pushed to the limit of our faith as we grow, as we expand. There's no growth without expansion, right? There's no growth without some sort of stress and, and so on there. Psalm 119 is the Grand Canyon of Scripture's greatness and sufficiency, but those who have been blessed by its study would encourage us to not let its great size discourage us from exploring it. Feeling, feeling small and inadequate before greatness is really a good thing. Being aware of our own inability and inexperience of life and feeling ill-equipped for such a task is, hel- is a healthy feeling if it brings us to our knees in desperation and dependence. It leads us to pray like this psalm praise in verse 18 the psalmist prays, Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. In verse 26, he prays, I have declared my ways and you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the ways of your precepts so I shall meditate on your wonderful works. And it's great to feel inadequate because you can come to the Lord who is our adequacy. Now, this psalm is not only long in its words, but also in its use in history. George Wishart was the Bishop of Edinburgh and also the mentor for John Knox. Uh, John Knox is said to stand before the pulpit with his sword drawn while Wishart preached so that if anybody tried to approach the pulpit to kill Wishart, Knox was there ready to chop his head off uh, with the traditional Scottish sword that I forget the name of it. It was a broad sword, but there's a name to it that's... The claymore, you stand with it unsheathed in front of the pulpit to protect the preacher. That was George Wishart. But Wishart was eventually condemned, found guilty of believing the Bible, and was sent to the gallows and was going to be um, 
not beheaded, but hung. Yes, sorry, I'm a little tired of words that are escaping my mind. And when upon the scaffold, he, uh, Wishart availed himself of the tradition that permitted the condemned to choose a psalm to be sung. So he chose the 119th psalm to be sung. <laughs> and before two-thirds of the psalm was sung, a letter with a pardon arrived, and his life was spared on that day because of the singing of Psalm 119. John Newton tells a story of a preacher by the name of William Grimshaw, who was an 18th century minister in England, who occasionally employed this psalm during his long and fruitful ministry in this little town called, the best I can pronounce, Haworth, England, H-A-W-O-R-T-H. He was, this Grimshaw was a powerful preacher, but not everyone in town showed up every Sunday to hear him. Newton says it was his frequent custom to leave the church at Haworth while the psalm before the sermon was singing to see if any were absent from worship and idling their time in the churchyard, the street, or the ale houses. And many of these whom he so found, he would drive into the church before him. No, Newton continues, he says, A friend of mine passing a public house in Haworth on a Lord's Day morning saw several persons making their escape out of it, some, in, some jumping out of the lower windows and some over the, a low wall. He was at first alarmed, fearing the house was on fire. But upon inquiring what was the cause of the commotion, he was only told that the, they saw the pastor coming. <laughs> they were more afraid, Newton says, of the pastor than of the justice of the peace, who was the policeman of the time. His reproof was so authoritative and yet so mild and friendly that the stoutest sinner could not stand before it. And yes, what does that have to do with Psalm 119? Well, on, a, on particularly sparse Sundays, uh, right after he announced his text, he would encourage the congregation, now we're going to sing Psalm 119, all 176 verses. And then he would make the beeline to the bars, to the field of sports, and drive the people to church so that, and he would have Psalm 119 sung so that he can bring a bunch of people uh, to church on those days. So the length of it had a purpose as well, even in, in bringing people to church that way. But the length of this psalm, though, should not be the only thing it's known for. It should be equally known for its breadth of thought, depth of meaning, and its heights of passion for God and His Word. Some have equated the psalm to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city, the heavenly city described in the book of Revelation that's equaling lengths and widths and height. And that's all the psalm is too. It may not impress or attract the unspiritual, the psalm might not, just like the blind do not enjoy the Grand Canyon's depth and width, but you who believe the regenerated heart wants to speak like Verse 161 speaks where it says, Princes persecute me without a cause, but my heart stands in awe of your word. And lastly, this psalm is the fruit of suffering in the life of the psalmist. It was suffering the life of the author that gave us this magnificent psalm about the word of God and the God of the word. There's no title telling us who wrote it. Oh, their commentators believed that was a psalm of David, but probably more accurate to be that, that was written after the, the, the exile, so it was a post-exilic psalm, so around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. 
whoever the human author was, it, it is the word of God uttered, uttered in a time of suffering. And this is, profoundly a, this is a profoundly a God-centered psalm addressing God about 275 times. So he addresses God more than he speaks about the word of God. 175 times about the word of God, 275 times it speaks of God himself. And one thing clear to me in my study is that only a God-centered, scripture-filled, and scripture-loving life would sustain the writer through what we do know from his life based on what he wrote on this psalm. Even verse 161 gives us uh, one of many insights as to the circumstances of setting of the psalm. In 161 it says, Princes persecute me without a cause. It is clear from many verses that there was heavy personal persecution in the life of this man who loved God's law. In verse 23 it says, This... Sorry, wrong, ver- wrong psalm. Verse 23 says, Princes also sit, against, uh, sit, sit, sit and speak against me, but your servant meditates on your statutes. Verse 51 says, The proud have me in great derision, yet I do not turn aside from your law. Verse 86 says, All your commandments are faithful. They persecute me wrongfully. Help me. In verse 157 It says, many are my persecutors and my enemies, yet I do not turn from your enemies. So if you think you had a rough week, listen to what was going on in the life of this man. In verse 61, he says, the cores of the wicked have bound me, but I have not forgotten your law. In 110, he says, the wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not strayed from your precepts. So brothers and sisters, if you ever feel trapped or surrounded by wickedness or sinful people take comfort from this psalm and true comfort the true comfort that God intends is not just identifying with the emotions not just identifying with the suffering but but, but by reading the other half of each verse to see how the psalmist dealt with it It says yes I've been persecuted by your word still precious to me. Yes, I've been persecuted yet, but your word is still the guide for my life. God's word is sufficient, not only in the everyday difficulties of life, but in the most extreme difficulties that have been faced by saints in the past. This wasn't just spiritual or physical persecutions. This is physical and deadly harm intended by his enemies. In verse 87, he says, they almost made an end of me on earth. Can any of us say that? That's what we experienced this week. Yeah, this is what this man, and yet he's able to say, but I did not forsake your precept. In verse 95, it says, the wicked wait for me to destroy me, but I will consider your testimonies. And as we study through this psalm, I hope it will become clear to us how a high view of God and his word and a high love for his law is what will guide us through the valleys and shadows and pits as we journey through this canyon of life's rugged terrain. Whatever the source of your afflictions or sufferings of difficulties, this psalm gives help and hope. In verse 143, the psalmist says, Trouble and anguish have overtaken me, yet your commandments 
are my delight. In 153, he says, Consider my affliction, deliver me, for I do not forget your law. In 157, Many are my persecutors and my enemies, yet I do not turn from your testimonies. We already saw 161. 165, he says, Great peace have those who love your law, and nothing causes them to stumble. And then, lastly, 167, My soul keeps your testimony. I love them exceedingly. I want to be able to pray like this man. I want to be able to pray like this man. I want to be able to be more like this psalmist. I want to truly believe and preach and live like I believe these truths. And I pray that that is your desire as well. And that our Lord will bless this pursuit as we join our hearts to the psalmist on this journey. And as we survey the wonders of Scripture's greatness and sufficiency, I pray God will cause us to fall more deeply in love with his wonderful word. Let us pray together. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that your spirit would wield it and that he, holding your word, would have his way in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.